Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. James. Greetings and salutations to the sixth episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. And I'm your guide on this gamble through gothic romance, Stella. There won't be any continuity for this show, but I do suggest maybe starting with episode one if you've never read Jane Eyre. And then, of course, you can hop around to what interests you. And I do make mention of a previous episode this episode because there is a connection. So this is going to be interesting because I'm going to be looking at feature films this episode. And I thought, what better way than to pick two of my favorite adaptations and pair them up, look at them side by side, ring the bell, have them go at it, and let's see who comes out the champion the best adaptation or the better of the two if such a thing exists so i'm going to be looking at jane eyre from 1944 and jane eyre from 2011 the first half of this episode i'm going to be giving you details of the various projects more so on the 1944 just thank you for the afi website for all that information and reviews as well and i did use a similar review for both films and then after the break i'm going to go through my rubric and just talk about both of these films side by side what they had in common, pros, cons, critiques I may have, questions I may have, and then at the very end, maybe I'll decide who comes out on top. So beginning with the Jane Eyre from 1944, I do, I hesitate to say this, but it was covered on Film and Water episode 53, and the reason why I hesitate to say it is because I feel like I did not live up to the expectation of Jane Eyre and I don't know if I did as good a job I never listened to it back I don't usually when I guest star so I can only think about what it was like when I was talking on the show but I am sure Rob did a wonderful job because he always does on those so you can always give it a listen where we do talk about that 1944 version 
but I'm kind of coming in clean and I feel like I do have some differing opinions now, especially since I've seen some other adaptations as well as some films that are along the same genre. It has always been true, but never more true than it is right now. The pictures you enjoy most are based on the most widely read novels. Recall Grapes of Wrath, Gone with the Wind, How Green Was My Valley, This Above All, Rebecca, great pictures, all of them. And now 20th Century Fox brings you Jane Eyre, based on the most widely read novel in our language, printed and reprinted a hundred times, most recently by the Book of the Month Club. Its immortal lovers are played by the most discussed celebrity in the entertainment world and the actress who won the Academy Award in Suspicion. Whatever happens, do not open a door. Either door. allowed up here. Understand? No one. Get thee down. Get thee down. Jane, strange. Almost unearthly thing. You that I love is my own flesh. Don't mock me. I blow off for blanche. It's you I want. Answer me, Jane, quickly. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. Say it, Jane. Say it. I want to read your face. Read quickly. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. So its official release date was February 1944. Its New York opening was the 4th of February in 44, and the Los Angeles opening was the 10th of February in 1944. The production dates ran from the 3rd of February through mid-April of 1943. Copyright by 20th Century Fox Film Corporation. It is black and white. Sound is by Western Electric Recording. It is, this is kind of funny, but duration is 95 to 97 minutes. So I'm not sure if there's a, there are different versions out there. And in feet, it is 8,520, or in reels, it is 10. Produced by the United States, language is English. And here we go with some of these credits. So as Edward Rochester, we have the Orson Welles. Joan Fontaine plays Jane Eyre. Margaret O'Brien, whom I know very well from Meet Me in St. Louis, plays Adele. Peggy Ann Garner plays Jane Eyre as a child. John Sutton plays Dr. Rivers. Sarah Allgood plays Bessie. Henry Danielle plays Henry Brocklehurst. Agnes Moorhead plays Mrs. Reed. Aubrey Mather plays Colonel Percy Dent. 
Edith Barrett plays Mrs. Fairfax, and Edith Barrett was also the mother in I Walked with a Zombie, and I'm going to bring that up in this episode as well. So I guess actually there are two connections back to previous episodes. And not mentioned here, for whatever reason, is Elizabeth Taylor playing Helen Burns, so just be aware of that. William Gertz was in charge of the production uh, and distribution company was of course 20th century fox the director was robert stevenson assistant director arthur jacobson second unit director william l Pereira. kenneth mcgowan it was the producer and the associate producer was orson wells and writers on the screenplay is the man himself who wrote brave new world aldo huxley robert stevenson john houseman and ketty frings Director of Photography, George Barnes. Production Designer, William L. Pereira. Art Director, James Pesevi. And Weard B. Inen. The editing was done by Walter Thompson. Set Decorator, Thomas Little. Associate Set Decorator, Ross Dowd. Costumes, Renee Hubert. Music, Bernard Ehrman. Sound, W.D. Flick and Roger Herman. Special photographic effects, Fred Serson. Makeup artist, Guy Pierce. No, not that Guy Pierce. <laughs> and Maurice Siderman was Orson Welles' makeup artist, probably in particular that ending sequence. And then the scenario assistant, which is interesting, was Barbara Keon. As for the genres, we have romance, and the subgenre is historical. And some subjects, major subjects, we have England, governesses, insanity, marriage, romance, secrets, wards, and guardians. The minor subjects, we have arson, aunts, battered children, blindness, brothers-in-law, death and dying, education, French, friendship, great Danes, mansions, orphanages, physicians, religiosity, servants, shyness, snobs and snobbishness, upper classes, wealth and weddings. Gosh, you can just boil all that down and say it's Jane Eyre. So here's some history from AFI again. The opening title card of the film reads, 20th Century Fox presents Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Throughout the film, off-screen narration is spoken by Joan Fontaine as Jane Eyre, and at the end of the picture, she paraphrases the book when describing the partial recovery of Rochester's sight. And then one day, when our firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes as they once were, large, brilliant, and black. The character Dr. Rivers, played by John Sutton, was created for the film and does not appear in Bronte's book. On the 6th of October, 1941, the New York Times announced that independent producer David O. Selznick had joined United Artists and intended to produce Jane Eyre for release through United Artists. Other contemporary sources note that Selznick began preparations on Jane Eyre in early 1941 and that director Robert Stevenson, who was a member of the Bronte Society, had been interested in making a film adaptation of Charlotte Bronte's novel for several years. A February 1942 Hollywood Reporter news item noted that Selznick was testing Sir Cedric Hardwick for the role Brocklehurst, and that K.T. Stevens, Burgess Meredith, and Gene Kelly, wow, would also test for the film. 
1942 of April, Hollywood Reporter announced that Ronald Coleman was out of the production and that Selznick would test Alan Marshall to replace him. In July 42, Hollywood Reporter first speculated that Walter Pidgeon, Coleman, and Marshall were all strong contenders for the role of Edward Rochester, then announced that Selznick had offered the role to Orson Welles, who had played that part previously in radio performances. An unsourced but contemporary article in the film's file at the Ampus Library reported that Fontaine, Vivian Lee, and Catherine Hepburn were neck-to-neck contenders for the part of Jane Eyre. As an aside, I will say that Joan Fontaine is a beautiful woman, but which, you know, goes against, I think, you know, part of the Jane Eyre quality, but Vivian Lee would be (laughs) very difficult to pass for Jane Eyre, in my opinion. In October 42, however, Selznick began efforts to sell a number of his literary properties, and it appeared that Paramount would purchase the rights to Jane Eyre. The deal was not struck, however, and in November of 42, Selznick sold the completed script to Jane Eyre to 20th Century Fox, along with the rights to Claudia and Keys of the Kingdom. Information in the 20th Century Fox records of the legal department, located at the UCLA Arts Special Collections Library, discloses that Keith Winter and DeWitt Bodine may have contributed to the completed script, and a contemporary guide for teachers quoted director Robert Stevenson as crediting Bodine with doing, quote, a good deal of our research work. In addition to the screenplay, Selznick sold the completed production designs executed by William Pereira and arranged for 20th Century Fox to employ Pereira, Fontaine, Stevenson, and cinematographer George Barnes on the picture. According to a memo from Selznick, reprinted in a modern source, Selznick suggested the casting of Vivian Lee's daughter, Suzanne Holman, as young Jane. A January 1943 Hollywood Reporter news item announced that although Peggy Ann Garner had been scheduled to play Jane Eyre as a child, the part was reassigned to Margaret O'Brien, who was borrowed from MGM because the studio, quote, changed the casting for a different type, end quote. In the finished film, however, Garner does play Jane and O'Brien portrays Adele. In February 43, Hollywood Reporter noted that Vincent Price was being tested for the role of Brocklehurst. That would be an interesting choice. Although a February 1943 studio press release announced that Glenn Gallagher had been cast in the picture, his appearance in the completed film has not been confirmed. According to a modern source, Igor Stravinsky was engaged to write the film's music score but did not finish due to disagreements with studio production chief Daryl F. Zanuck. Stravinsky's compositions did not appear in the completed picture, and modern sources report that composer Bernard Ehrman was hired upon the request of Selznick and Wells. In discussing the studio's production plans, a New York Times article coming out on December 20th in 1942 noted that writer Aldo Huxley had intentionally decided to depict Bertha Rochester as an off-screen character who was discussed rather than seen so that, quote, the inherent menace in the character will be more effective, end quote. The article also noted that, quote, English censorship restrictions on the depiction of lunacy will also be satisfied by the off-screen device. Wow, there are restrictions in the depiction of lunacy as if it doesn't exist. You know, if we don't show it, it doesn't exist. In an April... 17th, 1943, memo to Gertz, reprinted in a modern source, Selznick protested Wells's proposed associate producer credit, claiming that it would detract from the achievement of Stevenson, who Selznick believed had largely acted as producer since the sale of the Jane Eyre screenplay. The Hollywood Reporter Review commented, quote, as several producers had a hand in bringing Jane Eyre to its glorious fulfillment, screen credit to any one individual was waived by all, end quote. 
Soon after the completion of Jane Eyre, Wells served as a consultant on the studio's two-reel short subject entitled Three Sisters of the Moors. The short, starring Sir Cedric Hardwick, Molly Lamont, Lynn Roberts, and Heather Angel, told the story of the Bronte sisters and was intended to interest moviegoers in Jane Eyre. According to Hollywood Reporter in February of 44, Monogram announced that it would withdraw from circulation all prints of its own feature-length Jane Eyre, which was originally released in 34. The Hollywood Reporter knew item noted that, quote, despite requests to reissue the picture in various territories, Monogram feels it would be unethical to do so at this time while 20th Century Fox is releasing its new version, end quote. A Lux radio theater broadcast of the 20th Century Fox production starring Wells and Loretta Young aired on the 5th of June in 44. Other Lux radio theater broadcasts aired on June 27th, 1938 in a version starring Helen Hayes and Robert Montgomery. And on June 14th, 1948, with Montgomery reprising his role as Rochester. And if you recall, I shared one of those, which, of course, Ingrid Bergman was Jane Eyre. And I will say, I'll go into more detail as I'm comparing the two films, but there is a close connection between this 1944 film and the Lux Radio Theater productions as well. So I chose one review to read out from that particular time. This is from Variety. It was published on February 2nd, 1944. Charlotte Bronte's Victorian novel Jane Eyre, which has been on the library list for nearly a century, has again reached the screen in a drama that is as intense on celluloid as it is on the printed page. Joan Fontaine and Orson Welles are the stars, and 20th Century Fox has produced a picture geared for hefty grosses. For the exacting who have read and recall the original story, there will be much in the film to win their favor. This picture has taken liberties with a novel that may be chalked off to cinematic expediency, but there is, nonetheless, a certain script articulation that closer heed to the book could possibly not have achieved. The story's basic framework remains present in the film. There have been excluded certain elemental features, however, that tended to give the original story some of its colorful passages. It's a picture, however, that has achieved more than the original deserved. For Jane Eyre, in case one forgets, has long been fanciful, tragic prose in the schoolboy schoolgirl idiom. Jane Eyre will be remembered as a story of a girl who, after a childhood during which she was buffeted about in an orphanage, secures a position as governess to the ward of one Edward Rochester, sire of an English manor house called Thornfield. Jane Eyre eventually falls in love with him, and he with her. When their wedding is interrupted by a man who accuses Rochester of already being married, there is divulged the secret that Rochester has kept for many years, that he has a wife who is a raving maniac and whom he keeps locked up in a tower at Thornfield. Thornfield. Jane's flight from Thornfield, the privations she endured, and her ultimate heeding of a telepathic call from Rochester culminate in her return to him. She then learns of the death of his wife in a fire that destroys Thornfield and in which Rochester has become blinded and maimed in attempting to rescue Mrs. Rochester after she had set fire to the house. The original story was as pat as all that. Full of improbabilities and with a remarkable naivete for an author whose fame has been as great as Charlotte Bronte's. In the novel, there are some fine love passages in those final scenes that have not been transferred to the screen. The film's end, in fact, comes too abruptly and too patly. But with all, this is a film that should be seen. Miss Fontaine and Wells are excellent, though the latter is frequently inaudible in the slur of his lines. It is a, <laughs> it is a large cast and one that acquits itself well. 
Notable in the support are Henry Danielle as Brocklehurst, the cruel overseer of the orphanage, Margaret O'Brien, the child ward of Rochester, John Sutton as Dr. Rivers. The original novel had no such character, if memory serves correctly, though there was a St. John Rivers, the cleric, who wished to marry Jane Eyre. Sarah Allgood, Agnes Moorhead as the cruel aunt of Jane Eyre, and Edith Barrett as Mrs. Fairfax, the Rochester housekeeper. There is some excellent photography by George Barnes, practically all in light and shadow to emphasize the eeriness of the story, and the direction by Robert Stevenson has heightened the illusion of action where, frequently, none existed. And William Gertz has endowed the production with all the niceties of expensive filmmaking. But, basically, Jane Eyre, the novel, remains something for the high school classroom, a study in the literature of another day. The picture is something else again. It is intriguing adult entertainment. Con is the the name that is at the end. Okay, so that's all about 1944, the lead up, some of the background, a review of the time. So Jane Eyre from 2011. Do you know, Jane Eyre, where the wicked go after death? They go to hell. And what is hell? Where are you, Ran? If you don't sit still, you will be tied down. Pit full of fire. Should you like to fall into this pit and be burned there forever? People think you are good, but you are hard-hearted. Get out. Children, I exhort you to withhold the hand of friendship to Jane Eyre. This is a grand old house, but it can feel a little dreary. Mr. Rochester's visits are always unexpected. Your gaze is very direct, Miss Eyre. Do you think me handsome? No, sir. You're afraid of me. I'm not afraid. I was not asleep. I know what I saw. It must have been half dream, half reality. You transfixed me quite. What am I to do then? You rare unearthly thing. I must have you for my own. You're so little acquainted with men. Keep him at a distance. Miss Ingram's coming. She's a great favourite of his. Floating gently in the stream of life. Unaware of the rocks ahead waiting to dash you to pieces. Do you think that because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, that I am soulless and heartless? Jane! Jane! Seems unreal. You saw the most phantom like of all. Jay. This was a Focus Features worldwide release presented in association with BBC Films of a Ruby Films production. It was produced by Alison Owen, Paul Tridgebitz, executive producers Christine Langan, Peter Hamden, co-producers Mary Bett, Faye Ward, directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, screenplay by Moira Buffini, and of course, based on the novel by Charlotte Bronte. For crew, deluxe color. Camera, we have Adriana Goldman, editor Melanie Ann Oliver, music Dario Marianelli, production designer Will Hughes Jones, art director Carl Probert, set director Tina Jones, costume designer Michael O'Connor, sound DTS Dolby Digital, Peter Lindsay, 
Supervising sound editors Matthew Collinge, Catherine Hodgson, re-recording mixer Robert Farr, visual effects supervisor Sean Farrow, visual effects Blue Bolt, Modus, associate producer Hannah Farrell, assistant director Lee Grummet, casting Nina Gold. Reviewed at Sunset Screening Room, West Hollywood, on February 23rd, 2011. It has an MPAA rating of PG-13, which I think the only reason why it's not PG is because the nude painting that is hanging, which art is art. I don't know why you would up the rating for that. It probably should just be PG. Running time, 118 minutes. It stars Mia Vashikovska as Jane Eyre, Michael Fassbender as Edward Rochester, Jamie Bell as Sinjin Rivers, Sally Hawkins as Mrs. Reed, Simon McBurney as Mr. Brocklehurst, Valentina Servi as Bertha Mason, Judy Dench, the Dame Judy Dench as Mrs. Fairfax, Holiday Granger as Diana Rivers, Tamsin Merchant as Mary Rivers, Amelia Clarkson as Young Jane, Craig Roberts as John Reed, Jane Wisner as Bessie, Freya Wilson as Eliza Reed, Emily High as Georgiana Reed, Sandy McDade as Miss Scatcherd, Freya Parks as Helen Burns, Edwina Ellick as Miss Temple, though you can barely see her, Rosie Cavaliero as Grace Poole, Imogen Poots as Blanche Ingram, Sophie Ward as Lady Ingram, Joe Van Moyland as Lord Ingram, Hayden Phillips as Colonel Dent, Laura Phillips as Mrs. Dent, Harry Lloyd as Richard Mason, Ned Dennehy as Dr. Carter, Joseph Kloska as Clergyman Wood. Now, AFI doesn't exist for this particular film, but IMDb trivia does. So here are some interesting factoids. The location of Jane Eyre's cottage was so isolated that there was no mobile phone reception. A member of the crew had to be stationed in a nearby phone booth with a walkie-talkie in case the crew needed anything. He didn't complain, however, as the local residents brought him tea and biscuits throughout the day. To help create the gothic atmosphere present in this movie, many shots were lit exclusively by firelight or candlelight. While the majority of the book takes place in the 1830s, director Kerry Joji Fukunaga changed the timeline so that most of the movie took place about a decade later because he felt that mid-1830s fashions were very over-the-top and unflattering and wanted to dress Mrs. Reed in those styles rather than Jane Eyre. While shooting the climactic post-wedding scene between Jane and Edward, filming had to be stopped repeatedly because Fassbender's suspenders kept breaking and had to be re-sewn. Kerry Joji Fukunaga chose not to film any footage of Thornfield Hall burning down because he wanted this movie to feel like the novel, which is entirely first person from Jane's perspective. In the book, Jane is not present for the fire, and Fukunaga didn't feel there was a way to include it organically in the movie. Elliot Page was the first choice for the lead role, but withdrew when production was delayed. Hmm, I don't know if I could see him as Jane. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I'm thinking about Elliot previously I, that would be an interesting choice I, I feel like Mia fits the, the role better this is possibly the first adaptation of Jane Eyre in which her rival Blanche Ingram is shown as described in the book a striking black-haired woman in most other adaptations she's played by women with bright blonde hair likely as a contrast to dark-haired Jane the location used for the Reed's home Gateshead is the same house where Gosford Park from 2001 was filmed 
Rami Setbon Moore, a.k.a. Adele, which I forgot to include her, was cast in part because she speaks fluent French. Director Kerry Joji Fukunaga held auditions at a local bilingual school to find a girl who could convincingly play a French child but who could also understand his direction. The director wanted a scene to illustrate how much Mr. Rochester's presence at Thornfield Hall disrupted the lives of its permanent residents, so he wrote the dinner scene in which Mrs. Fairfax, Jane, and Adele try to carry on a conversation while Mr. Rochester fires a gun right outside the window. This scene does not take place in the novel, and in this movie's commentary, Fukunaga claims it was the only original scene written for the movie. Mia had to wear a wig for all of her scenes... Uh, this is the first adaptation in which Mr. Rochester is more affectionate towards Jane in earlier scenes as opposed to the book. Uh, during the scene where Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, and Jane are eating while Mr. Rochester is shooting birds, the director would play music in earpieces that the actors and actresses wore to make them react to the gunshots. At one point, he forgot that Rami Setborn Moore was on set and played a song with explicit language, causing Rami's mother to scowl at him. <laughs> Lynn Ramsey was asked to direct but turned down the offer. The logo for the popular movie website Gordon and the Whale, owned by Chase Whale, appears towards the end of the movie as a watercolor painting. And I think that's it. Then they just have different people working with each other at different times. Okay, so the last thing to wrap this up is, of course, a review. And to keep in the same theme of reviews, I found a variety review, which was published on March 3rd, 2011, and the author is Justin Chang. The candlelight flickers exquisitely, even as the passions are slow to ignite in the spare, shrewdly acted, but not especially vital retelling of Jane Eyre. Favoring a darkly expressive visual approach that plays up the gothic extremity of Charlotte Bronte's oft-filmed classic, Helmer Carey Joji Fukunaga brings a temperament of steel to a stark, severe adaptation that provides only fleeting emotional and psychological access to its famous heroine. Michael Fassbender's casting as one of cinema's dreamier Rochesters may raise purest eyebrows, but could also broaden Focus's reach among younger women, certainly including but not limited to Bronte buffs. That's interesting you say that because compared to Timothy Dalton, I feel like he's not as attractive Michael Fassbender so that's an interesting comment to make from the 1944 Joan Fontaine Orson Welles film to the 1996 version directed by Franco Zeffirelli nearly every feature-length Jane Eyre has had to wrestle with the challenge of condensing Bronte's episodic narrative a task more easily managed by five hour plus adaptations such as the beloved 1983 miniseries in an unusual gambit, scribe Moira Buffini shuffles the chronology with a simple, elegant framing device. Rather than detailing Jane's cruel Victorian orphanhood, the opening scenes are marked by a sense of tragic inevitability, as the older Jane is seen fleeing Thornfield Hall into a quintessentially Brontan landscape of wild moors and sodden English weather. Jane is taken in by missionary St. John Rivers and his two sisters, whose introduction early on underscores the absence of family that is Miss Eyre's most wounding privation. This makes her an intuitive segue into her early years as a spirited child, brutally mistreated by her aunt, who soon packs her off to a parochial hellhole to suffer the abuses of a self-righteous headmaster. 
though Fukunaga was hardly an orthodox choice to direct a period's costumer after Sin Nombre, his 2009 debut about Central American immigrants, his hand can be discerned in the film's unusually blunt, visceral dramatization of Jane's ordeals, such as an abrupt cut to the lash of a cane against the girl's back. And whereas past adaptations have relied on voiceover as a substitute for Jane's first-person narration, Fukunaga avoids such exposition with a bold insistence on image-driven storytelling. There's a bit of the turn of the screw in this Jane era. When Jane is installed as a governess at Thornfield and received by Judy Dench's benign, faintly reproving housekeeper, the house is cloaked in the sort of impenetrable shadows that might have been lensed by Gordon Willis. Disquieting later passages from Jane's first meeting with the surly mysterious Rochester to her growing awareness of some malevolent unseen presence are shot with the shivery atmospherics of a horror picture. The subtle visual inflections and deliberately constricted performances contribute to a slow burn effect that compels up to a point. The attraction between Jane and Rochester initially remains at a barely perceptible simmer as Vashakovska and Fassbender bring an icy, combative edge to their scenes that doesn't melt until the last possible moment. But melt it does, as both actors credibly and movingly reveal emotions their characters scarcely have the ability to acknowledge. At this point, however, the narrative machinery of Bronte's tale dutifully clicks in, and even the script's structural tweaks can't ward off the perfunctory feel inherent in the preponderance of third-act revelations. The camera's restless pans across the rugged countryside set to the increasingly high-strung violins of Dario Marianelli's score begin to smack of stylistic desperation as the film becomes content to observe its heroine's actions without penetrating her consciousness. These problems are hardly unique to this Jane Eyre, which affords a few piercing moments by dint of its performances, but never threatens to sweep the viewer away. After her decisive breakthrough last year in The Kids Are All Right and Alice in Wonderland, Australian thespian Vashakovska again impresses, looking glum and dowdy, her pale, spectral beauty peeking out only intermittently from behind a hard, pinched countenance. The actress carries the burden of Jane's suffering in every frame, conveying her broken spirit, but also her fiercely honest and independent nature. Some may deem Fassbender too handsome for a man described in the book as decidedly unattractive, but the protean Irish thespian evinces a reptilian quality that repels and fascinates, keeping one guessing as to what this belligerent, elusive, and clearly tormented figure feels or doesn't feel for Jane. If Fassbender looks younger than other Rochesters, the crucial age gap is delicately sustained by the fact that Vashikovska looks younger than other Janes. Lensed in somber, muted tones by Adriana Goldman, the picture is handsomely appointed in all respects, particularly by production designer Will Hughes-Jones and costume designer Michael O'Connor. Sound design is exceptionally crisp. Whew! That was a lot. And it's interesting to read a review from 1944 and a review from 2011 and just see the vocabulary distinctions and how they speak of it and how they give a plot synopsis and things like that and what, what they feel like they can talk about. Okay, so I'm going to take a break. And <laughs> when I return, these two films are going to duke it out for supremacy. See you soon. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. 
While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Welcome back. So I think I went back and forth on how I was going to do this, but I think what I'm going to do is go back and forth between 1944 and 2011 versions. And so I'll give you what I'm talking about, like the this, this subject matter, I guess, and then what 1944 does and then what 2011 does, if that makes sense. So just starting off right off the bat with formatting. So the 1944 version uses Jane as a narrator, as the Variety Review, the most recent one, actually talked about. She reads directly from the book, and it uses the book as a way to show credits, which is a really interesting introduction, and book excerpts break up the film at particularly important moments in the narrative as well as in Jane's life. For 2011, we do have a framing device or scenes, I guess, we can call it, I think, a framing device, going in right off the bat where the narrative order from the beginning of the story are spliced with scenes of Jane at the moors with the rivers so we actually begin nearly at the end of her story she meets the rivers and then while she's at the rivers and recovering we go backwards in time and see her origin story and it kind of starts flashing the breaks normally happen similar to 1944 when something of import is happening in Jane's history and these splices end once she actually gets to Thornfield and the way that this narrative is nonlinear to a certain extent, and again, using that framing device, certainly reminds me of Greta Gerwig's recent Little Women, if you kind of know how that was formatted and laid out. Some details. So 1944, we've got black and white. The music is more foreboding, I would say. Joan's face, is, Joan Fontaine, Joan's face is usually well lit, while it seems that there is some... I don't know, film noir aspects to how Orson Welles' face is lit. It's, it's mostly in shadows with really just a strip of light focusing on his eyes, which often look pretty crazy. For 2011, it's color, the setting, and I don't know. It, it There are pros and cons, I think, with black and white and with color. I think in terms of, and I might be getting ahead of myself here, but in terms of the gothic feel and kind of the horror aspects, I think the black and white has it. But with the 2011, I feel like you really see that the sweeping beauty of the setting that Charlotte was writing about and her words I think you really see them on screen the the moors are so sweeping during those scenes and and just makes Jane appear so isolated as she's traveling and encountering this deprivation and the music here I would say is more romantic I think there are some foreboding sections but it just feels more romantic compared to this really dark sound with the 44 version Okay, so we'll get into some stories now. So first, childhood. 
1944. We begin with Jane in the Red Room. <laughs> That's right off the bat. You know, she's in trouble. She's in there. They establish the contentious relationship with John during the interview with Brocklehurst, but we don't necessarily get to see too much of what that relationship is like. She's happy to go to Lowood. So from that, you can sort of intuit what her life has been like at Gateshead. There's a small showing of the relationship between Bessie and Jane as she leaves, which is really interesting, but it's necessary given the fact that she returns. But again, yeah, pretty small, but there's not much time that she spends here. So they're doing what they can. And you also see... Jane's relationship or lack thereof with her aunt as she's yelling at her from inside the gate and basically you know saying how terrible of a person is so you know that she is pretty strong in her convictions and she is also willing to speak her mind to people over in 2011 we do have the red room but we actually get to see that abusive side of John Reed and that it's not just them getting to childish squabbles, but there is a violent side to him and he can use his place as favorite son to get out of any trouble. So actually, you do get to see that hit. That's It's pretty violent. I always remember that particular hit, just that he whacks her with the book and that force sends her into a wall and then her head starts bleeding. So she is sent to the Red Room. We get to see that and it feels more sinister, I think, than the 44 version. We see Aunt Reed's callousness and her, you know, sending her to Lowood, calling her a liar. We see that meeting with Brocklehurst. It's not an in-depth look at her life, but I think it is more in-depth than the 1944 version. You get the idea of what it was like living there and what Jane's nature is as a child because Brocklehurst leaves and she tells Aunt Reed what she thinks of her to her face and the fact that you know, you call me a liar. I am not a liar. And, you know, my uncle and my mother and father are looking down at you and they'll remember this, which is something obviously, you know, it's coming from a child. So you think, oh, Aunt Reed's not going to pay too much attention to that. But that is something that really gets to Aunt Reed because she made that promise to Uncle Reed that she would take care of her. So I think that that guilt uh, certainly gets in there and carries on when she return so she carries it with her for years we have helen burns in both versions a very cute elizabeth taylor to be sure so in 1944 it begins with the shunning jane is just off the bat i mean she's so happy to go to lowood off the bat she is shunned and brocklehurst is telling everyone to stay away from her and she's a liar but it establishes helen's kindness when she brings food and then later on looking at their friendship we also see jane's desperation to be loved and to be loved to the point of violence where she says i'd have my arm broken if it would mean i would be loved they talk of the future together and they get punished together we don't really have miss temple we we do see the negativity of miss scatcher though 
And in place of Miss Temple, who I guess is there but is not really there, we do have kind Dr. Rivers, who stands up to Brocklehurst. It's interesting some of the things he says because Dr. Rivers says he's not a theologian, yet he does speak of Jane's duty to do God's work later on. So we do see some positive aspects of Christianity, and it comes at a good place because it contrasts Brocklehurst, whom we know is a hypocrite. We also see Jane turn down the Lowood position and Dr. Rivers sees her off, which is great. At her first pit stop, we see a man making eyes at Jane, which I thought, wow, we're, we're really seeing, you know, Jane and her experiencing what it's like to be out of the comfort or the safety of some of these places. And now she's actually in the world. And I should say the death scene with Helen is, you know, they... I feel like every adaptation that has Helen at least does get this right, just that they're they're in bed together and Helen is resigned to whatever her fate is. She's ready to meet her lord and Jane is, you know, trying to hold on to her and then they, they fall asleep and inevitably Helen dies in the middle of the night and, and Jane is with her. Um, sometimes she's woken up and she sees Helen and, and sometimes she's carried away, but it's still pretty poignant to have your best friend your only friend, the first person who showed you love and kindness, die next to you. In 2011, we do see their first meeting. And it seems like there's already an established friendship. But it, it comes quickly. And I think you you do have to intuit a lot of what's going on. And we see Helen's lessons for Jane, which that's a big part of her character. So I'm glad that that was there. And of course, Helen's death. It's brief. The relationship in 2011 is brief, but I feel like it's poignant and believable in what they do and what we see. And, you know, two girls making eyes across the the hall, giving each other comfort like that. I, I thought just short little scenes that are beautiful and no Miss Temple here. I did have a section of feminist message. It was just something that I picked up that I felt like, I mean, you know, I could pull open or Google or control F my way through Jane Eyre, but it's just interesting, the scene before Jane meets Rochester where Jane is speaking to Mrs. Fairfax in the 2011 version, and that relationship is interesting to begin with because Fairfax certainly tries to live and be above her station and relates to Jane as if Jane is you know a higher status as well but she's not a menial servant I guess and she is just talking about you know Skyline is is the limit for her and and how she wishes kind of for that freedom but there is there is that theme of being trapped and and wishing for for freedom and and wanting to be an independent spirit which of course she she has and she exhorts to others but over you know I I feel like she in the 2011 version we do get to see I think more of a feminist message and that variety review I think talked about it as well just in how Vashikovska is able to be meek and mild and also strong and fierce at the same time which seems like you know, a contradiction in words. Whereas Joan, I think, is mostly meek and mild. Uh, she does, there is some emotion, of course, leading up to the confession of love and everything. But there isn't much kind of pushback. Uh, there are similar scenes, of course, where they talk about that freeborn people won't 
put up with insolence, you know, or disrespect from another person, even from a salary. So there are certain lines like that that push through and show her independence. But again, I think just the 2011, and perhaps they just have more freedom, whereas, you know, 1944 was sort of feminist message beyond those that are implicit within the, the source material can we really put forward. Okay, the first meeting with Rochester, 1944 version. Seems like it's evening. I'm really not sure why Jane is out walking on her own. We see Rochester on the horse, then Rochester off the horse, which reminds me of the scene, uh, the film that I did not get to see, the silent film where one of the articles, one of the reviews said that that was very clumsy. So anyways, we don't even see the actual falling. After a bit of anger and annoyance, Rochester's more curious as to who she is. He quickly takes notice that she has a mind of her own. We've got the interrogation, as I call it, by the fire. He says that she has a face of another world. He is brusque and attempts to change from giving orders, ask questions, but we don't see too much of Jane pushing back. I think she's curious to be sure after the interaction, but not as maybe strong-willed as we saw see in 2011. We have a second interrogation plus a, a brief questioning of Fairfax, and this gives more of an indication of Rochester's rough past. And at the end of the second interrogation, you know, he's hoping that she will be happy at Thornfield. So I feel like those two interrogations, as I call them, kind of run the gamut of emotions and highs and lows of <laughs> interactions that people should probably have. In the 2011 version with the first meeting, it certainly isn't clumsy looking. They actually see the fall, so it's actually really well done. Gothic feel with lighting and fog as Jane is walking. Jane is nervous to interact with this guy who just fell off the horse. Rochester's confounded as to her appearance suddenly and, of course, the accident. When we get to the interrogation by the fire, we collapse. We actually have a really long scene between the two of them. So the two interrogations, as I see them in 1944, are really collapsed into one. So it's a long scene where you get to see an arc of people meeting for the first time and trying to suss each other out. Jane is not disturbed, even though like she really is being interrogated. They have a good back and forth. He speaks of imps, elves, and little green men, which is very much in line with the book. And Rochester also uses her art to glean insight into who she is, both the piano as well as her art art. Speaking of Mrs. Fairfax, so in 1944, as I mentioned, this character was played by the mother from I Walked with a Zombie. She is kind. She doesn't seem to assert herself or move out of her, or attempt to move out of her position in social class. And she also gives us an info dump as soon as Jane arrives. So she very much speaks to the audience. I don't remember if this is where I want to talk about it, but I'll, I will anyways, that if you recall in that episode of I Walked with a Zombie and, and the mother has this monologue about what happened to Jessica and how she's the cause of it and voodooism and all, or voodoo and all that. And I said, it was very one note. There wasn't much emotion. Like, man, there are some things happening. Why aren't you emoting more? And I did come to the conclusion like, well, maybe, you know, that's a choice, right? So maybe she as well is also a zombie, which I think is, is a potential read. But I will say that 
as an actress playing Mrs. Fairfax, very one note again and not much uh, emoting. So maybe it's just how the actress acts. We've got the Dame Judy Dench, so it's not going to be like that. Certainly someone who both has ideas about one's place within a social hierarchy and also thinks herself better than others of her similar station. She perhaps sees herself as equal to Jane or better. She's puzzled by her and her feminist ways. She does help give Jane and, again, the audience or us history that we would not see otherwise. She warns Jane about Rochester post-engagement, which is something that not many people do, I would say. I think this warning also does lead Jane to having some doubts given an interaction between Jane and Rochester later. Like, you know, is this a dream? You're you're the most stream like of all that that scene there and she provides Jane and the viewer with what happened to Bertha Rochester and Thornfield at the end because of course Jane wasn't there to see it Rochester's character oh boy it's Orson Welles it is Orson Welles right so commanding presence both physically and vocally he does make really interesting choices here though in watching it this particular time I feel like I've seen this maybe three or four times I was a bit puzzled here because I think especially when I get into Jane and and Rochester's interactions in that love confession Rochester or Orson Welles playing Rochester just seems to have two dials it's sort of this angry brusque guy or this really calm guy and there's kind of not an in-between or interstitial little notches on his dial I feel like he doesn't show a great amount of range in my opinion which is shocking to say because it is Orson Welles and I can't say right this could just be that's a choice that's how he chose to play Rochester with Fassbender as Rochester he's blunt he speaks negatively directly or in the presence of others he's sarcastic at times he's honest but also has opaque answers of his broken past but he really shows a range I think Fassbender does a wonderful job as Rochester showing him being kind of antagonistic loving a bit gaslighting because you know trying to figure you know figure out if Jane loves him or not and the dangling the whole wife situation showing this really bruised and hurt man with this terrible past you see it all and and I think that again the love confession I think is really where you should check your versions to see how these two actors are playing those characters and those really powerful lines that they're saying so it seems pretty blasphemous you know to say that someone may have done something better than Orson Welles but I honestly think that Fassbender is able to embody Rochester a bit better or give him you know more dimension than Welles is able to so let's look at that Jane and Rochester relationship. In the 1944 version, there's actually a two-year age difference between the actual actors, which I thought was interesting. Both of them are trying to suss each other out. You know, he's used to being the master of the house, and she stands up to him. What? Who is this? He certainly seems chastened after Jane scolds him over Adele, and he warms slightly, and he even actually worries over Adele after that first fire. There's a change in the relationship after the fire. They are very close physically, and it is certainly a romantically intense scene once Jane leaves the party with the Ingrams, and Rochester, he says he doesn't know why Jane would be upset, but 
All of that is forgotten, and the closeness continues with the arrival of Richard. There's lots of hand-holding and touching, beginning from the fire onwards. Rochester knows that Jane will not do something that is wrong, so he actually knows her character and understands her. There's a distinct difference in tone, manner, and interaction when Rochester uses Miss Eyre and when he uses Jane. So when you're watching or reading, perhaps, but watching versions, I think you should you should attempt to pick up on that. We do see an interaction between Blanche and Rochester that we should not have since Jane is not there, but this answers questions I had on the radio play, and it makes clear that the radio play was based on this rather than the novel or vice versa, right? We're adding characters, we're not returning elsewhere, there are certain scenes that Jane's not a part of that we're seeing that we shouldn't be seeing, that kind of stuff. Joan's range of emotions are more present, I think, than Orson's, as I said. He seems to maintain the same expressions throughout. You can at least tell that he knows Jane loves him and is just pulling her about until she confesses. They still include the big lines, poor obscure, the line of the heart and all that. The shopping sequences to get ready for the wedding, I think, were a bit strange because Jane looks overjoyed rather than uncomfortable at the expense and wealth that is being displayed and she's partaking in, and she should be uncomfortable. So the fact that she is actually happy to be partaking seems a bit strange. Rochester calmly explains his romantic history, and Jane easily forgives him and still loves him. And it's really interesting that she said, you know, it's easy to say now because I'm leaving, you know, it'll be the last time. Rochester lets her go in this case, rather than Jane having to escape herself. And I do wonder if it is easier on Rochester's heart for Jane to leave in person or to flee in the night or what the the directors wanted to say about that. Having Jane escape, I think, is uh, she takes ownership, right, and gives her agency, whereas this one, it's like he owned her and now, like, I'm letting you go. You can go. So, you know, there's a lack of, of feminist quality in the 1944 version. In the 2011 version, there is a 12-year difference between Fassbender and Vashakovska. Rochester shows pretty immediate respect of Jane during their second meeting as Jane expresses that no freeborn thing should put up with insolence, even for a salary. Her genuine and honest answers as well as telling him he'll degenerate more if he seeks pleasure at all costs, I think is really big. And, and not many people are going to tell him that kind of stuff because it's not what he wants to hear. There is a clear moment of the change in their relationship. Once she saves him, that seems to be the catalyst, the moment that they start. And they shake hands the morning after. And such an intense moment is immediately followed by him leaving that day and going to see Blanche. So you see the highs and lows already in that she's just kind of being pulled back and forth. You already see the pain Jane is going through upon leaving this Ingram party. And Rochester's foolishness for not understanding why Jane may be upset and his concern for Jane. Her concern for him when Richard arrives. And then, of course, you have the post-Richard scene, which is heartwarming and frustrating at the same time since Jane just assumes that it's not her that he is speaking of. We have moments of a smiling and jokester Rochester, which I think is really, really nice and heartening for someone who does have such a tragic past and struggles a great deal. 
I wonder if first-time viewers and non-readers would believe, as Jane does, that Rochester is about to marry Blanche. I think that's something that I often wonder, like, are, is everyone being pulled along for this ride, or is it just the, the, the one woman in this scene? I don't know. The love confession scene is my favorite, just with the varying emotions and the amazing quotes. We've got, you know, the heart with the string connecting us and the performances. Uh, it's just, I really, you should look up just those scenes to see the range and what they're going through. And I think you just get a good sense of what Jane Eyre the novel is. They seem so happy afterwards and you're happy for them, which I think is, is, what it should do, right? That that the audience should be pulled in with emotion for those characters. I also like to see some of their day-to-day afterwards. I think you often don't get to see this, and it's my favorite in shipping, right? Because you're waiting for the couples to get together. They get together. Inevitably, there's some sort of conflict that breaks them up, and then they'll get together again, and then it's like happily ever after, and you don't get to see that. But I just think like, oh, man, what are these couples like after they're together? And that's always something that I look forward to seeing. The next category that I want to look at is imagery, and there were a couple striking moments that I saw first from the 1944 version during that love confession scene and Jane saying that she would marry Edward we have that storm like the the wind is starting to pick up as we're reaching the crescendo of this confession and the proposal and then lightning strikes the tree as soon as Jane says she would marry Edward and I feel like yes it's totally dramatic but it is absolutely in line with the source material that that tree actually pops up within a dream and then takes place in real life or appears in real life and just the foreboding as well and the foreshadowing of you know this union has begun not on the best ground and there's something that's probably going to tear them asunder. In the 2011 version, I had alluded to the fact that this was rated PG-13 most likely because of, and I think it even says in the MPAA reading, uh, rating, a nude image. So there is a painting that Jane comes upon when she first comes to Thornfield, and she doesn't very clearly see it because she's just passing through, and then there's a second time that you see it as well, and she studies it a bit more, and then hears a, hears a noise and moves on. So I I can't tell. I, I actually did some research to figure out what this painting was of. I looked at it. It's definitely Cupid. Just looking at that imagery, you can tell that it's Cupid. I really wanted it to be Cupid and Psyche because that whole relationship and that whole myth is built on this idea that they have this relationship, but it's very much in the dark, literally and figuratively, and Psyche can never see who Cupid is or else something terrible is going to happen to her. And then she's tricked into tricking him, right, to prove that love. So I really felt like, oh, that would be a great painting to have and really works well, I think, with the Jane and Rochester narrative. I feel like it might be actually Cupid and Venus. One of the reasons is with any sort of Cupid and Psyche imagery, Cupid in those 
depictions is usually full grown. He seems adult. I mean, he's having a sexual relationship with another adult. So it'd be weird to have a baby there. But here we have Cupid as a baby and Venus is, well, you have this other woman next to him and she is naked and just very open about it. And it just seems like given that sensuality and Venus just being very comfortable with her sexuality, the fact that she is the goddess of love makes sense that that is probably who it is so the hidden things I thought oh that would be so great but if you look at this also I think you have this sensual message too Jane is ignorant of such things right and so to have her look upon that particular painting and Anyone can really, I think, look at a painting with an an eye to just examine it. But I think given how Fukunaga actually points Jane's attention to it twice and then the second time she's actually examining it, I think there is something deeper going on with that. So I think that's pretty interesting. There is also something that I really like about this particular version. And I'm trying to think if other versions had shown this but immediately after the attic scene the revelation and everything Jane runs back to her room and strips off her wedding dress I I just felt like that was super powerful to to just almost cleanse herself of what had happened and what had almost happened right that revelation and you see her actually holding her only dress that one dress that she really has she might have two dresses but really that one simple frock that she has in her hands I think really almost like you know it was a dream this wedding was a dream that's not who I am this that I'm holding in my hands right now is who I am and I thought that was a very powerful scene so let me talk about Sinjin and the rivers sisters so to a certain extent for the 44 version not applicable it is this journey the sojourn or really this escape I suppose you could say this flight is replaced by a late return to Gateshead where she actually sees her aunt and then she later on tries to be a teacher with the Lowood School. But Sinjin here is replaced by Dr. Rivers and he carries on that name. I think he's perhaps kinder than Sinjin. And, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the word I want to use. Perhaps he's less stern than Sinjin and I think he's more flexible. Even that word I don't like using with religion. Just remember that Sinjin is is pretty legalistic about things. And good works, to a certain extent, seems to trump a little bit faith, right? It's not hand in hand. It it might be like, good. we got to show those good works first. And here with Dr. Rivers, I I think there is, it seems like more compassionate. You, I think, are more easily able to relate to him. You can see his love for all of the children there at Lowood. And he does have, I think, some lessons. I mean, he's able to point out some hypocrisies of Brocklehurst, 
which is really interesting, and also leading Jane to do what her her duty may be in God's eyes, which in the absence of Helen, who is there to lead Jane through that? So even though it's kind of weird to create this new character, you can kind of tell they're they're borrowing from Sinjin, and I think they're also almost making him more palatable, right? Because you have this negative depiction of Christianity represented by Brocklehurst so do you really want something that could be considered negative or at least off-putting Christianity uh, or Christian model in Sinjin and here you have something along with Helen that is more positive and uplifting. In the 2011 version you it's interesting because you've got glances between Sinjin and Jane during these interstitial scenes and I think had I not known any better had I not read Jane Eyre had I not seen other adaptations I feel like it would lead me to believe that there may be romance blossoming between the two I mean glances across the way sisters noticing you know or trying to set them up it's it's interesting he pretty quickly brings up the idea of the missionary wife the first time of course right after Diana prods him to kiss Jane like a sister which was I feel like awkward timing right he kisses his sister's goodnight and then oh well you know isn't Jane her sister and so that's weird and then he follows her upstairs and talks to her about that missionary wife and so that is a mixed message there and a bit bizarre There's another strong scene, which I would say is the opposite of the love confession, between Sinjin and Jane when he's pressing her to come with him to India. They encounter each other on a walk and then just kind of, he immediately jumps into things. I would say in in regards to that scene, just again, a range of emotions. I think that some of these interactions that we have between a male and a female are just really well done in seeing what this relationship is like and whether people are on the same page or different pages it's it's done really well in this version it's a bit more difficult to suss him out and his motivations when we don't have Miss Rosamond and it really all comes out in that almost accosting of Jane when they're on the moors and they meet each other I guess it makes him more austere that he's just coming at it he's not trying to get away from this I don't know lustful item maybe or potential in his opinion to slip or fall and he you know missionary missionary wife Jane you're the perfect what's the, the perfect model for that or what could be let's let's do it I guess the only other way to add dimension to Sinjin without Miss Rosamond is, of course, his sisters, which I think we see a little bit, but we see all three relationships grow in those interstitial scenes. And it's interesting to establish some of those relationships first before you see, you know, Edward and Jane or Jane and Adele or or Jane and Helen, that sort of thing. And speaking of Adele... What is her relationship like with Jane? In the 1944 version, Adele is her own agent. She actually gives us information on her life and her relationship with Rochester as well as her mother. The relationship between Jane and Adele is more of a mother-daughter relationship here. She defends her and she sees her right before she runs off. So this is something that's been lacking frequently, just a closeness of a relationship between Jane and Adele and 1944 has it. In the 2011 version, they have a sweet first meeting, but it does just seem like a governess 
pupil relationship with a lack of overt warmth and love. Jane doesn't defend her to Rochester, which is a big no-no because we know that Jane sees herself in Adele and she also thinks that, you know, children and especially children who have had a rough time deserve love, right? And I think there's just more fondness on Adele's side towards Jane. And she also seems to be wise for her years and observant. It seems like she knows what troubles Jane. And she even shows some sadness that Rochester may marry Blanche and kind of looks over at Jane in, in one of those ways of... Just checking with you. I know you've not said anything, but I have suspicions. So just a a wise portrayal, but not as warm of a relationship. The party sequence. So in the 44 version, we have a private moment between Jane and Blanche, which is really interesting. They just kind of pass each other in the hall. But you certainly see the contrast. And Jane notices that contrast as well. Remember, there's a scene in the source material where she actually draws herself she has a self-portrait and then her imagining of who Blanche is and so I think in this physical interaction between the two she's able to size up who Blanche is vice versa though Blanche probably quickly dismisses her whereas Jane is like oh well I can't compete with her luckily Jane has something to do during the party needlework so it makes this version I think less painful for for empathetic audiences like myself and I like how she leaves instead of putting up with the insults so I did talk about how she didn't have as much agency when Rochester lets her escape Thornfield but here she is the one who actually gets up and leaves There's a scene before the actual party where Adele is sitting inside looking through a window at the party arriving and the party of people, I should say. And Jane is just as out of place as Adele. And I think it's really symbolic to have someone sitting there looking outside at something they can't reach very much like Dear Evan Hansen waving through the window, right? Or waving through a window. The party is as uncomfortable as you would imagine it to be, so good job there. You can tell a great deal from Jane's facial expressions in the scene, which I thought was great. She contemplates, I think, what Blanche says and how she and Rochester are interacting. So even though she's not engaging with the party, you, I think, as an audience member, are engaging with Jane through Mia's facial expressions. Let's talk a bit about Bertha and her brother. So in the 44 version, we see Grace early on, and then later Grace warns Jane off. We do see an interaction between Rochester and Richard that, of course, you wouldn't know since Jane left to ready the carriage, which I talked about this before in the Lux Radio Theater production. We Later on after the, the wedding, we kind of sort of see her madness and animalistic behavior you don't really get a a look at the actress it's very kind of blink and you miss it where she goes after Rochester and then is in off panel land or just as an aside so we see her but we don't actually see her and I guess now we realize why that we were being cautious or I shouldn't say we but the the writers were being and filmmakers were being cautious about what they were displaying that there may have been some censorship involved don't want to make people too uncomfortable Uh, but that is it's just unfortunate because Bertha she's not given much 
room for sympathy, I guess, for the audiences to provide sympathy to her because you're just going to, if you're not witnessing this or understanding what she's going through, you're only going to be focusing on the other two characters. In the 2011 version, there's not really a Grace Poole character. I think I did mention that there's a Grace Poole actress, but we don't really see her. What does she do? She's mentioned in passing. We hear her talking about the state of Bertha, but not too much after that. Now, the actress, Valentina Servi, the actress of Bertha, that is, is Italian, and I feel like she has a Mediterranean look about her, which, remember, there's kind of this discussion of, of who, what what could her, her race or ethnicity be in the novel. But her brother, or the actor anyways, that plays her brother, Harry Lloyd, is white. So I feel like there's a missed opportunity, but I also think that, hey, it's 2011, and I think expectations now, in 2022, are much higher. So maybe... Making a Jane Eyre now, which I don't really recommend, but making a Jane Eyre now I think would play differently and for good and for ill, right? Because to to see perhaps a person of color being treated poorly would raise some eyebrows and some ire, but it would be true to form and, and I think it would raise some good questions and things that people could talk about. Rochester does mention this I thought this was interesting does mention a madhouse to Jane and what it is like which is pretty horrific and that he had spared her that and in his interactions with her the only way that he could potentially control her is by bending her with his own cruelty and he would not do that so even though that's almost a blink and you miss it I feel like there is some sort of commentary or trying to address the problematic nature of the woman in the attic. So connecting right to or right from really Bertha is the gothic aspect, which is something that I am very serious about. So with the 1944 version, I think I've spoken about this in the beginning. The music adds to it. The black and white format adds to it. Jane goes exploring and when she's going exploring or the setting of her explorations is uh, adding to the gothic. The fact that she actually explores the house or the mansion or the manor is all the hall <laughs> is also we get to see more of that and, and creates this sense of foreboding. In the 2011 version, I feel like it's not as successful. The stage is set for something with a scene between Adele and Jane talking about the, the git trash and Adele later saying after that particular story that Sophie told her, Sophie is her nurse, told her about a woman roaming the halls at night who takes bites out of people. And, well, you know, that certainly happens because Bertha takes a bite out of Richard, right? But that's, ah, man, it just leads up to to not much. You know, Jane doesn't really wander the halls and figure and try to suss out what's going on there. Where the scene where she's mending Richard, I think, is certainly sinister because there's wind. There's some sort of air current coming through. She knows something's going on, but she doesn't actually open the door. So it's just, it's minimal. It's minimal, and I think this might be probably my, my biggest critique of the 2011 version is just its gothic aspects are only as far as you need to show that there's something maybe going on in Thornfield but I think it's more about the romantic the return to Gateshead in the 1944 version this sequence is moved after Jane flees Thornfield 
So we're just replacing the Rivers episode with this. Now, an early connection, and I hesitate to call it that, with Bessie works to have this return work. Bessie provides background on what happened to the Reed family. There seems to be maybe an emotional connection between Jane and Bessie, so of course Bessie welcomes her. Aunt Reed is still pretty spiteful in some moments when she has a lack of clarity, and then other times maybe she's mournful of her behavior. Dr. Rivers returns, and to be honest, in this version, though there is such an age difference, I could actually see Jane and Dr. Rivers together. That seems like a strange thing to say, but I just feel like, what a nice connection. Now, it is a bit sinister because, like, he knew her as a child, but just, like, their their history and their interactions, you know, it could work. It could work. Fontaine certainly has a range, again, like I said, which you see in her face with the letter Dr. Rivers receives and and reading that. The aunt dies without asking for forgiveness, so even though she may have shown some remorse, there wasn't an actual, you know, please forgive me, nor does she ask forgiveness from her dearly departed husband. In the 2011 version, we see how painful it is for Aunt Reed to confess and maybe begrudgingly allows that she made a mistake. Jane gives her forgiveness, and that is painful for Aunt Reed, which is interesting. We actually see her make a gasp of pain, but we actually don't see a connection between Jane and her cousins, which is, uh, of course, a point in the novel. So... It doesn't really seem like, like Aunt Reed in the 2011 version certainly feels bad. And and like I said, I think that guilt followed her from the very moment that Jane yelled at her that, you know, Uncle Reed is looking down at you because you promised him to take care of me and you didn't up to this moment. But even so, she, she just must hate that child. I don't know. And just does not even barely want to ask for forgiveness. But Jane's the better person and gives it. And then we go back. We go back, we've got the wedding and the reveal. In the 44 version, this is pretty calm, which is what I was surprised about. And one of my critiques or criticisms of Orson Welles acting, his eyes are a bit wild, but, you know, he doesn't rush the priest or anything. He's calmly inviting the people to come to his house and see his wife. And then he exits the church angrily and starts yelling at all the people who have come to congratulate him. But even, you know, the establishment of, of what had happened or the reveal is, is just pretty calm. And I wonder, is that really the moment? I mean, it's a choice, right? He chose to do it that way. But I just feel like it should be frenetic, which is how we see it over here in uh, the 2011 version. Because there is a major cause for concern right off the bat. He is dragging Jane from a distance, basically from Thornfield. They don't take a chariot. Drags her from Thornfield to the altar. He's not looking happy at all while in the midst of the ceremony. There's anger. There's pain. There's frustration. Oh my gosh, he, yeah, so Fassbender, I feel like, really pushes home what, you know, the all these emotions that Rochester is going through, why he would be acting this way, how desperate he is to have this, this moment of happiness and joy, and this creature that brings him love, and just trying to get away with it, even though I think he knows deep down, right, that it's, oh man, it's it's not a good idea. 
I love that Rochester in this version sleeps on the ground outside of Jane's door afterwards. He humbles himself before her when she exits her room. His sincerity and pain at revealing his past with Bertha makes it difficult to understand how people don't have empathy for this man. So I feel like if you don't like the novel version of Rochester, I mean, give this a look and and see how his character or your opinion of his character may change. When he uh, bursts into her room the morning after, I do wonder if he was knocking first because it just seems like he throws his shoulder against it and, and runs in, which was somewhat comical, but also would have been very inappropriate if Jane had been in there. And then my final talking point is the return to Thornfield and basically, I guess, the, the climax of the films. So in the 44 version, we see the burned shell with Fairfax speaking about what happened. Now, again, this actress, I guess choices, I don't know, but two out of two films that I've seen with her in it, this is her choice. No affect, no emoting. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I thought it also strange that you would stay in the house. Perhaps they didn't want to establish another setting <laughs> to get away, but you know, staying in this house, that might be unstable structurally who knows but only a section may have burned who knows but I feel like at that time period a great deal more of the house would have burned down because it's not like they probably have too sufficient maybe efficient of a fire department you know around there the intimacy of touch for a blind person is something that I, I've i been noticing for a while. I noticed it in The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein, where the mother of Denny sees with quote unquote, you know, quotes her granddaughter for the first time and, and feels her face. And this is of course, from the perspective of the dog. So he's explaining what that looks like watching the Academy award winning for best picture. And I highly recommend it Coda film where of course, you know, this family, this deaf family and the daughter who sings, and he asks her to sing this audition song that she sang to get into a prestigious program and she no I guess maybe it was I think it was after the I mean semantics but it was after her like the school recital and her father feels feels her her neck and her face and her throat as she's singing and so yeah to have this it's just so intimate because that is the the way right those were that was a blind example and a deaf example but just the idea that if you are lacking one sense how do you make up for it and I think touch is very much how you make up for for some of these Whoa, the ending has, I would consider, a violent kiss. Just, you know, coming together, being pulled in there. (laughs) And it was the first kiss that they had, which is rather interesting. But I don't think I would like a first kiss with somebody to be that forceful. At the very end, there's hope here. And it speaks of Rochester's mending and their family growing. So we end on a high. For the 2011 version, we've got a good scene straight out of the book. If you recall, it was one of the passages that I actually read how there's a simile, I believe, unless it's a metaphor of, I think it was a metaphor, of a young man about to approach his sleeping lover and, you know, surprise her and everything. And then he discovers that she is dead. And that was Jane's 
reaction, her emotional, visceral, visceral reaction to seeing Thornfield. Jane is running. She's excited to see Thornfield. And then her face drops as she sees that it has basically... And her face drops as she sees it's a burnt skeleton. And we are watching her face before we see why her face is making that reaction, which is just really powerful, I would say. The intimacy and power of touch in Rochester holding her hand and knowing it's hers, which of course harkens back to when he first touched her hand. And as I said, touch was happening throughout this particular adaptation in in 1944. And if you think about it, the power of touch in Christianity is also powerful. I don't know if that's necessarily a tie that Fukunaga was making, but just to think about how many times people would go up to Jesus and touch his robes at the very least, or Jesus would touch touch others and the power of that so there is I think I feel like a Christian connection as well Jane calls him Edward which I feel like is the first time and we end with that right so I feel like there's an equality there between the two now in a different way where there may have been in the past we end with no idea that Edward mostly heals and they have a child but we end with the idea of a dream and Jane says that he should awaken, right? He's he's afraid that this is all a dream. And this idea of this, this dreamscape, as well as the line about Rochester having nothing to say, she says, oh, Edward Rochester without nothing to say, recalls when Jane was in doubt pretty soon after the proposal and then also Mrs. Fairfax sowing those seeds as well and called Rochester a phantom and he wondered why she had nothing to say. So I do wonder, you know, what is it about dreams or dreamlike states? And dreams, that's a theme certainly in the source material. But in these two aspects or moments that it's happening in this adaptation, it doesn't present me with positive feelings. Like I'm nervous for what the future of this relationship even though I know what it is are we departing that and perhaps creating something else because I don't know it's almost like dreams is this too good to be true and then inevitably something unfortunate happens right so her first dream or her first thinking that this is a dream led to the wedding being dissolved and then this time what does this lead to so it's it's interesting if if you have seen I'm sorry I'm making like outside of this (laughs) the scope of this podcast references but if you have seen the recent nightmare alley that ends in a really perturbing way unfortunately where the main character is becoming a geek and or he's about to, and he's falling into the same trap that he knew. So he knows what's happening to him. And in the first adept, the original, in the original, there's there's hope because his lady love runs after him, and so there might be some reconciliation there. So I'm not sure exactly what's what's happening here. I guess the positive aspect of it is that they are together. But I just don't like the idea of ending on, you know, is this is this a dream? And just kind of having almost like a, a foreboding, I don't know, ending on a minor chord or something like that, right? So I, I, I like it, but it, it also makes me nervous. And I wonder what people would think 
if they hadn't known the source material and you also yeah again you don't know that he does recover to a certain extent and gets his sight back and that they have a child so what does that mean for that relationship if if this is this is how it is okay so two i don't know i would almost say vastly different but they're they're different adaptations i think they both have great qualities and i do have some criticisms of them as well if i were to pick between the two of them which ones i feel which one sorry which one i feel is the more faithful of the two i would honestly go with the 2011 version And I think a lot of the reason is because of the acting and, again, the range of emotions that I see on both of them and just really feeling for these characters and getting a depth that I don't see in the 1944 version. But where the 1944 version has the 2011 version beat is definitely the the gothic feel of it. I also think just that the 2011 version stays more faithful to the source material, whereas, you know, the 1944 version condenses some things, adds a character in order to condense some things. Both, of course, have the spirit of Jane Eyre. I think it's just the 2011's got the law of Jane Eyre. Okay, whoo! That's it with the side-by-side, so you can ring that boxing bell. Before I let you go, I of course have From the Airwaves. I have two comments from the website regarding my previous episode. From Siskoid, he says, Great interview, Stella, but then I'm a poetry nerd. I'm greatly enjoying this show, and every episode gets me closer to pulling the trigger on my own Hamlet podcast. Not just because I'm inspired, but because my approach would be quite dissimilar. I could never hope to be either as well-spoken nor as well-researched as you are. I guess I just want to be part, <laughs> be a part of Fire and Water's literary revolution. Hey, I'm all about the literary revolution. Let's just start burning comic books. Am I right? I, hey, please do the Hamlet podcast so I don't have to. And I would be interested to see how you would format your show. I think that would be great. And Hamlet is a, now it's not my favorite because Macbeth and Julius Caesar are, of course, my my two favorites. But I, and I came to Hamlet late in life, but I really enjoy it. And I think that would be interesting, especially given the plethora of adaptations. I'd be interested to see what you would choose for sure. And then my second comment comes from Brian Linton. I'm one of those people who struggle with poetry. For whatever reason, I approach poems as puzzles to be solved or as secret codes that need to be broken, rather than as a work of art to be experienced and enjoyed. That being said, I admire poets for their ability to see the world in a different way than I do. It was great to be introduced to Rita and her work, to learn about her process, and to hear how her love of Jane influences her writing. Thanks for another excellent episode. Thank you. And I will say, I I wonder if this is maybe a failing of the school system, potentially, because everything you, you said, right, puzzles to be solved, secret codes, all that stuff, that makes me think of just doing close readings in English class throughout high school, right? Because we do have to figure out what is this person saying? What are the figures of speech or literary devices that they're using, the rhythm and all that? So really looking at it 
in a micro way and not necessarily taking as much time to pull back in a macro way and look at it as a as a piece of art so very similar to paintings right people get really up close and look at the details but also pull back step really far away and see that whole picture thank you both for writing in and i guess that is it we're gonna have a visual delight next episode but i shan't spoil what it is if you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jane demands it, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to oracle at gmail.com, don't question it, and follow at oracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book.